Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, today I'm going to talk about leadership. It's a role we might aspire to as a member of a team, and if we're good at our job, sometimes we get promoted. So, without further ado, let's find out about leadership. So, you got the job. You're now officially the leader of the team. Technical skills and practical ability and capability may have got you to this point, but are you equipped to lead the team? Leadership is most important in any supply chain. I remember when I first started to study management and I came across something called the Peter Principle. And essentially, the Peter Principle said that people were promoted to their own level of incompetence. Now just think about that for a moment. If that statement's true, every leader in every organisation has reached a state of incompetence. So, it can't really be true, can it? There are occasions, of course, when we think our leaders are incompetent. And of course, some are. Nevertheless, when you work in an organisation that runs like a well-oiled machine, you know that leadership is present. When I worked in manufacturing and service operations or as a consultant, I always like to walk the floor. In other words, I like to move around the organisation to see what's going on. I like to talk to people and to find out exactly what they're doing, why they're doing it, and I like to watch and observe how they're doing it. This can reveal a great deal about the organisation, its operation, its management, its leadership, and of course the culture in the organisation too. When you walk the lines in a manufacturing plant, if things are untidy, disorganised or even chaotic, which sometimes they are, you know that something's not right. However, a clean, tidy factory with workers that always take care about what they're doing means a great deal, and you know that there are things right about this organisation. The best leaders communicate effectively with their colleagues, but that may not be enough. They're able to translate the strategic purpose of the organisation without going over people's heads and overcomplicating things. They're driven, and they work smart to achieve organisational goals. The strategy literature is full of articles about vision and mission. These are both necessary, but leaders have to know a little more than that. Leaders have to know where the organisation is heading and the best leadership teams have clarity of purpose and shared understanding about that vision and the direction of the company. I've observed leaders that have such skills in abundance and I've seen others that lack those skills. When you're not the leader, it's often easy to see the flaws of those who are. There are leaders that think rationally but lack empathy with others, and you may have witnessed that too. Then there are leaders who wear their heart on the sleeve and do everything they can to support their team, but lack reason and rationality, making it difficult to make hard decisions. Then there are clearly the leaders we all know should not be there, as they've exceeded their level of competence, as in the Peter Principle. There are many types of leader, just as there are people. There are endless articles about leadership traits, styles and characteristics. There are leaders who some say are born leaders, and there are leaders that learn to become leaders. There are charismatic leaders, rational leaders, empathetic leaders, and you name it, every type of leader you could describe in a different way. 
I think these statements are not necessarily correct when it comes to identifying traits and characteristics. It may not be just about the individual. It's more about the capability of the person, what they've learned and what they can actually do that matters. Some leaders might be born, as we said, and some might become leaders through learning. My view is that the latter statement is closer to the truth. There are other leaders that think leaders are shaped by the events that shape their lives or the situations they find themselves in, and I think there's truth in that too. Early in my own management career, I worked in a firm that was struggling to survive. The leader assembled the troops one day and laid bare the stark facts of a failing operation. The upshot was that unless we were able to attract new customers and keep the existing customers, who were incidentally leaving in droves, there'd be no future for anyone in this room. This appeared to have an immediate impact that focused people's minds on the reality we were about to bump into. Differences were set aside and focus was sharpened as people began to talk with purpose about what was needed. Action followed swiftly. There was no time to dither and delay or for endless approvals and sign-off. The situation galvanised the team spirit and synergy to do more than what any one individual might achieve on their own. The accountant chased the outstanding bill payments and managed creditors carefully to secure cash flows. The sales team worked more effectively than ever before. The production department looked to achieve efficiencies, managed quality more carefully and reduced waste. It was like the organisation woke up from a bad dream and decided to pull together to write a different ending to the story. Whatever happened did improve everything at a stroke. Inventories lowered, costs lowered, and customers came back. I often look back and I'm still puzzled as to why everything changed so fast. There are probably a couple of lessons here. I think we can learn from this. Firstly, the fact that the leader decided to put his cards on the table and show people how dire the situation had become created a more open culture, and it did so almost overnight. Secondly, the fact that the whole team realised how bad things were did not drive them into despair, but had the reverse effect to motivate everyone to make a real effort to save everyone's jobs. That day, complacency, silence and bitter arguments were set aside for good and for the good of the organisation, and the leader did what was required in the situation. Leadership is learned. We'll learn how to be a leader by watching good leaders and not-so-good leaders at work. Readiness is the first requirement, and we have to be ready, willing, and able to perform the leadership role. To be effective, we have to understand people. Why do people act and behave the way they do? What motivates them? Observing people in action to understand what helped them to achieve objectives or what held them back from doing so might be the first step. It might also offer some clues about how they might react in other situations, which may be similar or different to those observed. Step two is therefore the skill to make an assessment from observations to predict future behaviour. The third step is to develop leadership skills to direct, change or positively influence behaviour. You will note they are three skills that you can learn and apply in your role as leader. I have held different leadership roles in business, in education, in consultancy and in research. Although each role is different and has its own requirements, the role of the leader is similar. That is, 
to set direction, influence outcomes, build and develop effective teams by understanding their needs and coupling them with the organization's goals. Do theories help? Well, yes, they can do. Theories abound in management literature about behavior and motivations. Skinner's early animal behavior theories from working in a laboratory with rats set the scene for behaviorists. Skinner noted responses caused by stimuli. This was taken up by management theorists like McGregor, who gave us Theory X and Theory Y, which morphed into autocratic and democratic leadership styles. Theory X was directive and Theory Y was more relational, with primacy of either the task through direction and control or relationship building. Motivation theories in the workplace came from studies by Elton Mayo with the Hawthorne experiments, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Frederick Hertzberg's hygiene factors. Each one had something useful to say about how we might set about the task to develop leadership skills, to understand and motivate people. Motivation theories put the key emphasis on influencing people through developing good relationships and achieving the task without emphasising direction or control. While theories give us insights and inform us about what's involved, they do not directly offer actions or steps needed. Leadership is a process. It is ongoing. It's not an event or task. What we do as leader can improve or worsen any given situation. The aim is, of course, to improve it. Effective leaders are able to improve situations and outcomes. Think about a new sports coach who leads a team to success. They are effective if on balance they improve performance of the team to win trophies. They may not win all the games played, but they achieve their goal by winning enough. I began by talking about the Peter Principle, where you rise to your level of incompetence, so the highest position you reach, you're probably not necessarily going to be good at the role. But that's the highest level. But there are steps on the way where you will earn respect, you will achieve your goals, and you will become a good leader. So forget about the Peter Principle. It's not important to you. Just keep going. Get to the role. Make sure you're good at the role. Make sure you change your ideas and you're flexible enough and agile enough to change. The key thing about Leading is the ability to lead people, motivate people, set direction, be ready, willing and able to take on the challenges and learn as you go and learn fast. You've got to learn fast. You can't be seen to be making too many mistakes. You have to make few. But the ones you do make, you need to learn from and you must learn quickly. So you might be technically competent, technically good. You might be good with people, you might have a natural talent because you've managed to do that maybe in your home life, working with your family, you have to lead the children in a particular way and maybe in the workplace too, you have to lead the team. I'm not saying the team are children, but there are great similarities. It's like the roles that I had when I was a teacher or a researcher or a research manager. I had to lead the team to achieve particular tasks. And it's about knowing the talent in that team and who are the best people to put together to get the job done. Now, that's another key skill that leaders need to develop. You need to understand the talents of your team. And in every team, there are different talents. We don't want teams made up of people who are all alike. That would be a great mistake. Standardized units. There's been an overemphasis 
in organisations to talk about machines and make machine analogies. Indeed, I did it myself at the start of this talk when I mentioned the well-oiled machine. Now, although we can use those analogies, we mustn't think of the organisation as a machine permanently. We must think of it as people, individuals with their own abilities, their own skills and their own way of working. And that needs to be harnessed and combined with the purpose that you want to achieve. And so it's about harnessing the talent, understanding the talent, understanding what motivates the people and giving them the opportunity to do their best for themselves and for the organisation. I remember having a conversation many years ago now with Brian Bennett and he was the deputy chairman of Edward Arnold Publishing in London. And Brian was a convivial, intelligent, informative, well-rounded manager and director in that company. Brian was a leader. And in the conversation one evening over dinner, we were talking about what made a good organisation, what made a good manager. And Brian's answer was straightforward, off the cuff, and in one word. And he just said, agreement. And I think I was a bit stunned by the answer at the time. I was probably not able to see how important and how informed with experience this answer was. And I'm just going to explain it a little now. I've come to learn that agreement is important. And as a leader, reaching agreement with an individual, with team members and with people you manage is perhaps the most important thing that you can do. Yes, setting direction is one thing. Yes, planning is another. But actually reaching agreement about who does what, by when and how you set about the task and agreeing who's involved and agreeing the resources to carry out the plan, whatever that plan is, are all very essential steps in creating trust. And that's trust in the team and trust in the leader. And I think and reflect on that conversation and have done many times over the years. And it's put me in good stead when I've been making my own decisions about things. I think when you're a young person developing your own skills inside an organisation and aspiring to become a leader, you often search for formulas and recipes, recipes that you hope will work for you as a developing leader. And I think there's one thing I would caution is that you can have a basic recipe and it may work sometimes. It won't work always. And sometimes you need that je ne sais quoi to make something a little special. And when you make something special, it's about turning the recipe, as a chef might tell you, from a competent, ordinary meal into something that's greeted, savoured and achieves a Michelin star, maybe, for you in the restaurant. Well, as a leader, you need something beyond the recipe. And I think that's the point I'm making here. Recipes are all very well, but they don't work in every circumstance. And recipes for managers often come in the form of heuristics. And heuristics are rules of thumb by which we make decisions. The guidelines, mental maps in our head, models of what we think we ought to be doing in this given situation. 
And we do search for those models from time to time to help us achieve our objectives. But you might need something more. Daniel Kahneman, in his book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, encapsulates the idea of how people make decisions. And when we make a decision, quite often we can make a decision very quickly. In other words, we think fast. And when we're thinking fast, what Kahneman is saying about that is that we're leaping to those mental models that I just mentioned a second ago, to the heuristics that we know and understand to get us out of a a quick fix or to make an instant judgment. And those decisions are, of course, very important sometimes. We need that ability to do that. But at other times, we need to think slow. And by thinking slow, we need to think more reflectively about what we're doing. And it's that reflection that might be important to make better decisions. There are also times when we are a leader that we need to make a decision to quit or to stop something. And that can be difficult because we might be wedded to the past in the sense that we think about all the money that we've invested, the capital. And it may not just be financial capital. It may be all the human capital and the emotional capital that we've invested in a particular decision. Nevertheless, we have to cut our losses and move away. Now, gamblers do that sort of thing. They cut their losses and move away if they are rational. Or people evaluating risks, investors, they do the same. It's not emotional, it's rational. And they'll make a rational decision to cut the loss and move on to something else. Now, that can be a very important skill to learn as a leader. And it's a difficult one. And especially if it was your project as the leader and you promoted it. But there are times and situations that demand that we make those tough decisions to get out of something, to divest rather than continue with losses, cash outflows, and maybe eventually a terminal position that we just can't get out of. This can happen In an organisation, or it can happen in our own lives, we persist in relationships or careers that no longer serve us well. Why do we do that? Well, according to Annie Duke, when we've got tough decisions to make, we can be terrible quitters. And that holds us back. In such circumstances, we need saving from ourselves. In her book, Quit, Annie Duke talks about the power of knowing when to walk away. And she makes the analogy between grit and quit. It's a nice rhyme, isn't it? But this grit and quit sort of encapsulates what we do as humans. We stick at something because we've got grit, determination. And that's seen as a a good characteristic, a good trait to have. Whereas quitting is seen in negative terms. If you pack something in, you must be a loser, a failure. Which isn't, of course, always true, because the rational person in some circumstances would want to quit and walk away from something. Why continue with a relationship, a business idea, a project, if it's not getting you to where you want to be fast? Do you stick at it forever? That might just be long-term failure. It may be the case that it's time to walk away, and that's the point that's made in that book. 
And often we don't walk away from something because we have this fear of failure, the grit quit situation. If it's grit, it's good. If it's quit, it's bad. But as I've explained, it's knowing when to quit that's important. Leaders have to make hard decisions and they have to develop skills to know when to stick at something or when to quit. And it's about cutting your losses at the particular time. If you can't see those losses as investment anymore, it's time to leave the investment, divest. And that happens all the time. So that's, that's what people are doing when they're divesting parts of a company, closing it down moving on to something else. And if you look at the companies that survive over longer periods of time, many of them have moved away from their original purpose. But it's knowing when to leave that original purpose behind and move on to something else that becomes the important skill and the important decision of a leader. If we go back to Daniel Kahneman, one of the things he talked about in decision-making was loss aversion. And we often make a decision because we don't want to experience a loss in a situation. Now, we can apply that to all kinds of different situations. Supposing you take the job as the leader, it's a new job for you. But you could have stuck at your old role, which you really enjoyed and you were technically competent at, and you didn't want to move on to be the leader except you wanted the title and you wanted the extra pay that went with it. But when you get to the new role, you might find that that new role doesn't fulfill your personal motivations in the same way. And that's the decision we have to face up to in those circumstances. So some people will stay in a job because they don't want to fail at a new job. So I've just given the example of moving to a leadership role. Others will say, no, no, I'm going to move to this new role and I'm going to make it work, come what may. And that's where the grit and determination comes in that Duke referred to. So it's knowing when to quit that's important for you as an individual, for you as a leader, for you as an organisation. When to divest, cut your losses, move on to something new. But the new has this dissonance involved, this kind of uncertainty that can bear heavy on the decision. Quitting your old role might be fairly straightforward, but taking on a new role might be more difficult because of the fear of failure. You knew in your old role that you could do the job and do it well, and it's comfortable. And therefore, you could stick at that. But sometimes we work in firms where it's comfortable to do the job and we think, yeah, I'll stick around here. Things are going pretty well. And then the company's sold over our heads to somebody else. And it becomes a completely different organisation, different culture, and very quickly different people. And very quickly, the comfort that you thought you had has disappeared out the window. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode about leading the team and I hope you've learned something about leadership and about the decisions that we make as leaders and I hope it helps you 
in your role and in your organisation. And if you're not a leader yet, maybe it gives you some motivation to become one at some time in the future. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. The Chain Reaction Podcast was written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.